Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. I think in terms of self-reflection as being reformed, uh, one of the things that we get accused of is we get a rather bad rap in terms of the Holy Spirit, that we don't really seem that the Holy Spirit is something that is evident, say, in other traditions. Uh, we seem rather stoic, or worship seems rather formal. And so people kind of look at us from the outside and say that these are people that don't really seem to have a whole lot of warmth to the Lord or a whole lot of warmth to the Spirit. Those who are rather stoic in terms of their outward appearance. Now, maybe it's true that in terms of our culture, we do like a little more structure. I think that may be fair. But in terms of what our catechism says, and especially Calvin, and this surprises a lot of people when you tell them this, there's a lot of richness in what Calvin lays out in terms of the Holy Spirit. Our catechism is not something that minimizes the significance of the Holy Spirit at all. Even though we can say, well, there's only one question answered technically on the Spirit, I'd argue, well, read the whole third section of the catechism and see how the Spirit's working out in terms of our union with Christ. Uh, consistently, we have a very high view of the Holy Spirit. And so in terms of us being accused of being rather stoic or whatever you want to say or, or, or put it, uh, the reality is, do we really minimize the Holy Spirit's work? Are, are we doubting the significance of the Spirit? Or do we have a different understanding of the Holy Spirit? And then we truly do value uh, and esteem uh, the third person of the Trinity properly. And so as I look at this, I want to just divide it up in terms of what our uh, Lord's Day 20 is doing, in terms of promise by God that we have the Spirit and who He is, and then we have the fulfillment and seeing the application of the Holy Spirit. So think of this as our catechism's laying it out, that it's in terms of the Spirit being God, and in terms of the Spirit being the application of God's blessings and what Paul's doing here in Galatians. Now, so let's begin by the Spirit promised by God or being God. <clears throat> One of the things we understand in terms of the Holy Spirit is we do not see the Spirit as an expression of God. I'm not saying every other tradition necessarily does. Some do. Uh, and you think of Oneness Pentecostals where they deny the Trinity, for instance. That would be an example that doesn't mean that every single uh, group that holds to uh, visible expression of the Holy Spirit in terms of tongues or miracles or those sorts of things necessarily is a modalist. Now what that means is that the Holy Spirit would simply be an expression of God. And so the Holy Spirit's not God on this system. It's just oh, God expresses himself sometimes as Father, sometimes as Son, sometimes as Spirit, uh, but God is is not three persons in one God. He's one God expressed in three different ways. Our catechism is very clear. 
in terms of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God. We can pray to the Spirit. We can sing praises to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, as Christ is God and as the Father is God. So in terms of who he is in his person <clears throat> from eternity, the Holy Spirit is God. We, we have to believe that and affirm that. So right there, we have a very high view of the Holy Spirit. Going on then, as the Catechism affirms that the Holy Spirit is God, he is to be worshipped. Uh, we have there the understanding that he's a means, we think of the conception of the uh, birth of Christ. Uh, he's a giver of life. Uh, he's the one who's the inspiration for our revelation. In terms of the Apostles' Creed, notice that the Apostles' Creed says, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. So in terms of what we believe as Reformed people, and whether we express it as some traditions may think we ought to express it, we do have a very high view of the Holy Spirit. Now in terms of the Apostle Paul, and how he applies this to the Galatian church. And we look at the problem in Galatians and how they're denying the significance of Christ and the application of Christ's work through the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul begins with a very severe uh, question as he's dealing with uh, the problem in the church as we've addressed that there's Judaizers, it, it seems, that have come into the church causing some agitation, stirring up some trouble, uh, causing the people to really question the significance of Christ, necessity of Christ, validity of Christ, and whether an individual can just rest in Christ and whether Christ is really the consistent outworking of the Abrahamic promise or whether we need to have circumcision plus works <coughs> Excuse me, as we belong to Christ. And so it seems that as these Judaizers have come into the church, the church is saying, listen, you know, you want to come into to Christ or be part of him, you've got to embrace Christ and you have to embrace circumcision, the works of the law, the Mosaic economy, and what all these things entail and what it means. And so when the Apostle Paul asks this question, where he starts in verse 3 with an assertion of foolish Galatians, you, you kind of see where Paul's coming down on this. He, he's not being overly sympathetic at all to this other party. But he asks them, who has bewitched you? We've talked about this before. Uh, this can be the evil eye where someone casts a curse on someone. It can also be just sort of a, a trickery, a deception. Uh, maybe there's some sorcery used in this deception. Whatever the case, it's something where there is a deception that has gone on. Now when you hear this, you might think, well, Paul's asking them to actually report who has bewitched you, right? So he, he wants them to give a report, say, was this individual, this person, uh, came to the church, taught this. But before he pauses and gives them an opportunity to answer, he says, was it not, or basically it was before your eyes, Jesus Christ is portrayed as crucified. So in other words, right here we understand that this question is not asking them to give an actual report to the Apostle Paul. It's a rhetorical question. It's an invitation for them to, to think about themselves. You know, was there some sorcery going on? Is, is there some power going on within them other than the work of Christ or the work of the Spirit that has called them away from Jesus Christ? He's saying, you know the truth. 
And so Paul's saying you can't turn to the Judaizers and say, oh, but Paul, they were so persuasive and your argument was so unbelievable that when we heard them talk, we just said, this has to be right. Paul says, you know better. You know the gospel. You need to be discerning. And you need to discern truth from error. You, you can't listen to these reports and say that this is true. And so as Paul goes on, he's asking them about the significance of the Holy Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit through works of the law? Or do we find that we receive the Spirit by some other means? In other words, have we made ourselves in, in such a perfect place or prepared ourselves in such a way that the Holy Spirit has come in and now in the power of the flesh we reach perfection in our own strength? Uh, we go on, you know, as a... Is the one who gives you the Spirit, is he the one that does this by works of the law, hearing by faith? And then he goes on to Abraham, showing to us the reality that the application or the proper understanding of the Abrahamic promise is manifested by the gift of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us, applying the distinct blessings of Christ. Again, borrowing from Calvin. You know, Calvin does a great job. As long as Christ remains outside of us, he has no benefit to us. That's an important thing to remember. Because again, if Christ is just a priest who resides in heaven and he's made a perfect work, but there is no way for me or for you to, to have access to that priesthood, well then who cares at the end of the day? There is no benefit for Christ's priestly work. And that's what Paul's laying out here. When Abraham does... Uh, exercises his faith and believes, what's he believing in? He's not believing in himself. He's not believing in his own strength. He's believing that the promise of God is real and that Christ will establish his identity. And so Paul is applying this to the Galatian church, applying it to us and saying we need to believe this and make this who we are. Now we go down to verse 14. Uh, the, the verse that our catechism, or at least some translations, uh, cite, we find that now Paul really lays this out and is summarizing the point of what's going on. And he wants us to understand the significance of Christ, that it's in Christ Jesus' blessing is manifested. So it's in Christ Jesus that the fulfillment of that promise comes to pass. Now in 2 verse 20, is Paul who lives in Christ Jesus. So Christ is the one who dies, Christ is made alive, therefore the Apostle Paul is the one who lives in Christ. How does one take hold of Christ? By faith in the power of the Spirit. Secondly, we find then that there's this reminder that we receive the promised Spirit because of Christ. Christ enters history, and it's because of Christ we receive this promised spirit. So this promised spirit comes to us as the one who has made us alive. So for Paul, much like what Calvin, I think, rightly picks up, and this is where I say if you want to read anything from Calvin in terms of the Institutes, book three is some of the most edifying reading you can read. I know you may doubt that, but it's true. I mean, book three is devotional in terms of how Calvin moves on from Christ and now to the application of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's laying out here. And he's laying out here the fundamental promise that we have 
is that we will have God dwelling within us. I mean, you really think about that as a sinful, wicked people, as individuals unworthy of even being in the presence of God, even praying to God, we are unworthy of that blessing. But it goes to be more than that. It's not just that we can pray to God, it's that God actually dwells within us. We've received that very promise. What is more is the Apostle Paul, this is always something that, that I marvel at, that the Apostle Paul, being the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Jew of Jews, I mean the elite of the elite in terms of, of his identity, that if there is ever a man that would be repulsed by Gentiles, I mean truly disgusted by Gentiles, it would be the Apostle Paul prior to his conversion. He wouldn't want to talk to us. I mean, he'd probably be polite to us and saying, yes, even the, the goyim or the nations or the Gentiles, even those people are created in the image of God, but, but they're, they're not on par with me. I, I don't want to fellowship with them. And so when, when you think about the Apostle Paul having that mindset prior to his conversion, now writing to the Galatian church where they have elitist Judaizers coming into the church, and Paul's saying, listen, this promise of the Holy Spirit, even the Gentiles who used to disgust me are those who can receive this blessing. It's a rather profound thing and a rather profound transformation we see even in the Apostle Paul's mindset in terms of the Lord's work and his redemptive promise. But what is more when we think about this Holy Spirit and the reality of who the Spirit is in terms of God and the deity and the divine, and what Paul has laid out, that we have the Apostle Paul laying out the significance of this Spirit. And we have the fruits of the Spirit that he goes on to lay out. But we have in 3 verse 2 a question of, do we receive this Spirit by works of the law or by hearing? In other words, Paul is not getting into the actual mechanics of regeneration. He's getting at in terms of our experience. Now notice it's not that we break out in an ecstatic experience of tongue speaking or speaking in different languages. It's actually just by hearing and responding in faith that the Spirit's at work in us. And it's important to understand that's the standard Scripture lays out. It's hearing and the Spirit working this faith within us. The promise of God taking root within us. Going on, we have in 3 verse 5, again, as he works these miracles and as he does this, <coughs> is this in the power of the works of the law or by hearing in faith? Now again, this isn't saying we necessarily have to work miracles. But this is calling attention to the apostolic era and the time of the apostles and its uniqueness. That as the apostles worked these miracles testifying to their office, Paul's saying, did, did we do this by, by the works of the law? Because we were worthy? Um, because we obeyed better than someone else, and so therefore we have access to the special power? Or is this something else? Where, where God has given us the Spirit based upon the promise? Well, the apostle Paul in Galatians 2 has recounted his conversion and his mentorship by Peter. The Apostle Paul is, isn't one who went out looking for the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul wasn't going out looking to perform these miracles in the name of Christ. In fact, his history is quite opposite. Uh, Paul was one who is seeking to destroy 
the work of Christ. And so when Paul calls this to our attention, basically, how, how did I work these miracles? Did I do it by my faithfulness, by the works of the law? Actually, by the works of the law, you know what I did? I tried to destroy Christ Jesus. I tried to destroy his church. I tried to, to kill his saints and kill his people. That's what I tried to do by the works of the law. But it's by the power of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul manifests uh, the presence of God and the working of God and who he is in his apostolic office. And so the Apostle Paul then is laying this out in the ultimate orientation. In terms of how we understand the Spirit then taking residence within us, notice uh, 4 verse 6 and why I wanted to put this in the context. <coughs> then in terms of the promised Spirit and the Holy Spirit taking residence within us, we're called sons of God. Think about that designation and that reality. Sons of God. We are adopted, brought in to this family. And as Paul goes on, even we as Gentiles cry out, Abba, Father. So this is the same um, crying out that Christ does on the cross. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where Christ prays to his Father. Christ tells us in terms of the Lord's Prayer uh, to call upon our Father in heaven. So all these things are coming to our attention with this reality that now in our very hearts, by the work of the Spirit, we're crying out to our Father, seeing ourselves as sons. Now again, we hear sons, and people say, well, what about women? Are, are they part of this? Well, when Paul goes on to talk about the slave and the son, and he also you know, makes mention of the reality there's no more male or female, slave or free in Christ Jesus. When Paul uses this language, he wants us to recall in our minds the legality of the firstborn son. The firstborn son, in terms of Israel's birthright, would receive the greater portion. That was the right of being the firstborn son. For instance, you think about Isaac with Jacob and Esau. He wants Esau to receive the larger portion because Esau is a firstborn son. Uh, so, so Isaac wants Esau to have this favored portion and not Jacob. It's really countercultural, which is kind of ironic where we think of conservative Christianity being countercultural, where normally we, we think of that as being a liberal movement. But really, that's what's going on in terms of that story. God is countercultural, He's overturning the expected norm. And so, when you get back to this, and, and we're identified all as sons, we have to see ourselves as Christ being the firstborn son who is faithful, who shares his inheritance with the rest of us. So we have an equal portion. And so when it gets male and female, slave nor free, as Paul's recalling this, as he said, I believe in Galatians 3, uh, with the identity in Galatians 3, verse 28, with that assurance there, Paul's applying this and calling to our minds that no matter where we are in terms of this life, whether we're a slave of a lowly status, whether we're the, the house master, a slave of a high status, or the owner of the house, you know, the highest status where you own everything, it doesn't matter. The great equalizer in terms of this is the Holy Spirit applying and coming into our lives and God dwelling within us. God dwelling within us in his glory so that now we consciously cry out, Abba, Father. Again, the, the standard is not that we 
break out in a manifestation of tongues or we break out with these miraculous healings that we do in our power, but that we simply cry out, Abba, Father. We claim God as our Father. We understand that our birthright is only found in Christ Jesus. So as we briefly survey Galatians and we look at the Holy Spirit and how the Apostle Paul is applying this, he wants us to understand this is God dwelling in the midst of us. This is God who is transforming us. Now, what about the nature of this full fulfillment? This was promised. This is what God is going to work out. What about the full fulfillment? Well, this is where I appreciate our catechism as well. Because our catechism wants to be very clear in terms of how this Holy Spirit is manifested. It's not necessarily in an outward experiential thing, like, like I've mentioned with tongue speaking or miracles or these sorts of things. But he's given to me. I mean, think about that statement. The Spirit is given to me, not, not just to you, but to me. And so as we all read this, we're thinking he's given to me. And that's the point, that, that we read this and say this is a Spirit that's given to me individually, not just to the church, which is a true statement, and not just to you, which is a true statement, but we think about the Spirit personally given to me. That it means that, that I am personally converted, I am personally joined to Christ, I am personally in communion with a Trinitarian God. A rather profound thing. Yes, the, the Spirit sets a church aside. Yes, the Spirit grows a church together into one body. That's true. But it has to start with understanding that the Spirit is given to me. When it says also, or it gives the assurance that it makes me share in Christ and all his benefits. This again is getting at the reality of what um, Calvin is getting at. That it's not just that Christ is up there, Christ is in heaven. Christ is basically looking at the wall, watching the clock, waiting for the Father to send him back. Say, okay, now it's time to return and then all of a sudden, Christ interacts with history. But it's understanding that I share in Christ, that Christ intimately knows me. He knows my struggles. He knows my, my sins. He knows where I've grown. He knows where I need to grow. He knows where he's leading me. And again, I'm saying me not just because I'm the only person that receives this and I'm a superhuman, but it's for all of us to put me in that statement is a point of the catechism. So any of us can say, Christ knows me. He knows my sins. He knows where I need to grow. He knows where I have grown. He knows where I'm tempted to stumble. He knows where I'm going. He knows my days. And so when, when you start meditating on this and thinking about this concept, you realize Christ isn't just in heaven abstracted and indifferent. He's very much involved in my life, all of our lives. And as he's involved in our lives, he's leading us to where we need to go. The assurance then is that the Lord is the one who is truly our ultimate comfort. When Christ says at the Last Supper, I will send the Comforter. You know, so often we can think, well, I want Christ, but I don't really understand the significance of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we can think that. Well, when Christ says the Holy Spirit is a Comforter, He's saying the Holy Spirit is the one who applies the blessings of Christ. This is the one who works a new life within us. And so true, 
maybe we can say as reformed, maybe we're, we're doctrinally oriented and maybe we don't show the, the joy of the Spirit as other traditions. But it doesn't mean that the joy of the Spirit isn't there. It, it doesn't mean that we really minimize the significance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, because if we really understand the Spirit and to say that I don't have the Spirit, it's to say I don't have Christ. That's a pretty scary statement to say I don't have Christ. But the reality is I do have Christ. And I have Christ because the Holy Spirit has applied those blessings to me. And I love how the Catechism not only talks about the Spirit working within us, but He lives within me forever. Think about that, that statement. That again, I'm saying me not just because I'm a superhuman. It's for all of us to put me in that statement. It means that where I struggle, it means that where I'm prone to wander, and obviously, you know, the desire is I persevere through this and I don't want to just wander away from the Lord. But the Lord's always going to tug on me. He's never going to just let me go. He's never going to forsake me. He's going to remain with me. I am his project. He will bring me to glory. That's the comfort in this that the Holy Spirit gives to us. So if somebody says, well, what's the real comfort in Reformed faith in terms of the Holy Spirit? It's that God's not going to let go of me. God's going to continue to prod me, lead me, shepherd me, conform me, and work within me. And it's important to understand this because it's not about some experience. I mean, we have this in the Dutch tradition where we think about some groups that say you need to have that vision. And when you have the vision, then you know you really have God. Well, what we're going to see from the Apostle Paul and what our catechism is teaching us is that's not true. Uh, if we respond to Christ in faith, we have the Spirit. Because this is not something we're going to naturally desire to do. If we respond in the gospel by faith, it means we have the Holy Spirit. A rather wonderful promise and beautiful thing. Now, when we return to the subject at hand, when we think about Paul building on Abraham, and if you really think about what he's saying in verse 14, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. I think in a sense, we become so desensitized to this that we don't understand how controversial this statement is. Now, I'm not saying controversial in the sense we throw it out of Scripture or controversial in the sense that we say, oh, this isn't inspired. I'm not saying that. It's inspired. It's not accidental that the Apostle Paul wrote this. I believe he intended this and wrote this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it's controversial because of who we are as humans. That a Jewish individual would read this and say, no, Abraham's my father. He's my father because I am of a proper Israelite lineage. Not for the Goim, not for the nations, not for the Gentiles. This is my father. How dare the Apostle Paul say such a thing? And this is where, again, I marvel at the providence of God in raising the Apostle Paul in the way he did and how he led him and, and how you can see the, the Lord raising up certain people in certain times in history. Because I don't know if Peter can have the same credibility in saying that to the Galatian church. I don't know if the other apostles can have the same credibility as saying that. 
But the Apostle Paul has laid out his resume for a purpose. To remind the Gentile church, I'm not wishy-washy in terms of my Jewish credibility. I'm not someone who struggled with Jewish credibility. I loved my Jewish identity. I clung to it. Like I mentioned, he was willing to execute Christians who believed in Christ. Do you get any more zealous than that? That you're actually willing to take a human life because of your conviction, and you fight to take a human life because of your conviction. This tells us of a radical work of God in changing this man's perspective and orientation. And so when Paul writes this, he's saying, listen, I'm not writing this as someone who's wishy-washy. I'm not writing this because I just want to get people upset or make a controversial statement. Paul's saying, I'm writing this because I've come to realize by the grace of God that this is true. That Abraham, his promise was not just to Israel proper, but was to the Gentiles. So you think of this Abrahamic promise in the history that is set. Genesis 12, we hear the history of Abraham. How he's the one who is born in, in a house of idolatry. A house that doesn't love the Lord, it's not exclusive to the Lord. And the Lord comes to Abraham and specifically calls him out of that. Promises to lead him to be a shield, defender. We find the Lord leads him. Next significant event, we think of Genesis 15. Where we have there, the Lord coming to Abraham. How does he start? Abram, I am your shield and defender. I mean, what, what a profound thing. God's saying, I'm going to go before you. I am going to lead you. I am going to be the one who defends you as your God. And as the Lord starts with that, he's the one who will protect him, the one who is going to bring in the promise to Abraham, how he's going to be the one who will bless the nations. And how does Abraham respond in Genesis 15, 6? He said, amen to the promises of God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham has a moral failure in Genesis 16. Scripture doesn't lie about this. He conspires to bring about the heir through um, Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. And we have then the Lord coming to Abram once again. Genesis 17, I am going to bless the nations through you. I am going to bring my promise through you. And there we have the covenant of circumcision on the organ of generation making clear that Abram, or Abraham's line, father of a multitude, as his name has changed, no longer identified with his father, but now he's a father of a multitude, a barren couple, and he's going to bring about this promised heir. As Paul says in Romans 4, as good as dead, the Lord brings life. So when Paul builds on this in uh, 3 verse 14, that this promise of Abraham would come to the Gentiles, it's not about being biological heirs. If somebody says, well, then what's the significance of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit makes me a legal and rightful descendant of Abraham. Now, when we say that, what do we mean by that? It means that I am one who shares in the same gospel promise that was made to Abraham. Abraham looked forward to the coming of Christ. I look back to that reality. Abraham received the Spirit as a promise that this will, in fact, come to pass. We receive the Holy Spirit as confirmation 
that that promise has come to pass. And so the point is made. Everyone finds their identity uh, in this gospel promise and the power of the Spirit, not by something else, but by the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. Now, an individual can look at this and say, well, you receive the promised Spirit through faith. So it seems that first we have faith, then we have the Holy Spirit, as some will say, or they might appeal to this text. Well, the Apostle Paul is not contradicting John, where John says in 3 verse 3 with Jesus and Nicodemus, Christ himself says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So in 3 verse 3, clearly first the Spirit uh, enters into our lives and we take hold of Christ by faith. Uh, so clearly, first it's the Spirit that gives us life and then we are those who have this life. But yet, we still have this understanding of what the Apostle Paul speaks of, of receiving the promised Spirit through faith. But what has Paul said? Do you receive the Spirit through works or through faith or through hearing? And so this tells us an intended contrast that Paul has in the setting of this discussion. That there's individuals who are saying you're not really going to receive the blessings of redemption unless you receive the proper sign at the proper time and obey the proper regulations and observe them as you are supposed to. And so what, it, what, what the Judaizers are saying, in essence, as Paul's laying this out, is that as you work and prove your worthiness, then you receive Christ in the blessings of Christ. And Paul's saying, but that's not how God's ever worked. That's not the historic context of the promise. The promise is that God causes people they respond in faith. Why do they respond in faith? Well, it's in the power of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit and faith are working together. It's not my faith that makes the Spirit work. It's the Spirit that's working within me. And so the Apostle Paul wants to drive home the grace of the promise and also the consciousness of the promise. Because again, it gets at the question, how do I know that Christ is my Christ? How do I know that I have the blessings of Christ? How do I know that God has really bestowed his favor on me? The Apostle Paul tells us, do you believe in Christ? Do you believe that Christ is the one who is the Messiah? Do you believe he's the one who takes away your sin? Well, then the Spirit's at work within you. The commentator does a wonderful job of laying out four things regarding the significance of faith and what Paul is laying out in this argument. And I'll just summarize his points. At first he says, the abiding substance of God's promise is that man is justified through faith, not in terms of an experience. That's an important point. Because our experience and our passion in terms of our love for Christ can come and go. I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying it's okay to be lukewarm. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying in terms of our consciousness, we're not always on spot in terms of loving God as we ought to love God. But where do we come back? Where, where do we return? The point he's making is it's not about my experience in the moment. It's about my conviction and how I understand that the Spirit's at work in my life and I need to move beyond the doubt. I need to move beyond the indifference and understand the Spirit's at work I have Christ, and I need to be tuned into that. 
So in other words, it's a calling myself to repentance, not because my experience is lacking, but because in terms of who I am, I'm not walking consistently with this identity. God's promise is always sure. I'm the one that can be indifferent and, and have a problem with it. Secondly, justification by faith link, links us closely as sons with Abraham. So in terms of this declaration of righteousness and having faith, this is how we find our identity as heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Thirdly, we have this justification by faith as a means whereby we as Gentiles, the nations, the dirty pig eaters, are those who will be blessed. I mean, that's the reality of what Paul's saying. We're, we're the disgusting goim that the nations you don't want to be with. But yet, by the same spirit, by the same faith, by the same Christ, we have the same blessings. Going on then, this justification uh, is by faith is what gives us the orientation into Christ's death. We understand why Christ died. This isn't a status of elitism. It's understanding that I am a sinner. I need Christ to die. I need him to pay my debt. And I can be confident Christ has paid my debt. Therefore, I approach the throne of grace. Uh, I come before it in confidence, whether it's a time of celebration and saying, thank you, Lord, or whether it's in a time of struggle. Either way, I come before the throne of grace in the same Christ, in the same confidence. So in terms of then getting back to the original question, in terms of Reformed people, are we just stoic? Are we people that just minimize the work of the Holy Spirit? Are we people that just really have a bad understanding of the Holy Spirit because we don't uh, express it in the same way as other traditions? One of the things I will say about Reformed people as a criticism and something for us to think about, I'm just, and this is probably just me, but we do have a tendency uh, to minimize the significance of spiritual warfare. I think we do tend to be more rational. I think of the 19th century existentialist uh, a theologian, uh, sort of on the liberal side, I can't think of his name right now, but he's a French uh, philosopher who basically says the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled is convincing the world he doesn't exist. And that's the reality. I mean, we, we can go through life really uh, not understanding that Satan does want to rip us from the hand of God. And so I, I, I offer that. I say, yes, it's something for us as Reformed people to think about. But I'd say on the other side of the other tradition, when we look at, for instance, with charismatics, one of the criticisms I have with them is that there's so much emphasis on spiritual warfare that there is no peace. There, there is no confidence that God really is a shield and defender. Now, I'm not saying either side's better, but what I will say in terms of living in such fear of the spiritual warfare is that we never find any joy in the Lord, potentially. We, we, we live in constant fear that Satan's going to rip us out of the hand of God, and we're never going to find joy. So, as I say, okay, as Reformed, I can say maybe we minimize the force of spiritual warfare, but getting at then, what, why is the Holy Spirit so significant in terms of our theology? Well, in terms of our theology, I grant, as Reformed people, we don't have a manifestation like in other traditions. We don't speak in tongues. We don't have a time in our worship service where there's tongue speaking. I do think those gifts have ceased. I can discuss that and give a further defense of that, but I'll just assert it at this point. I do believe those gifts have ceased. 
but in terms of the ultimate blessing of the Holy Spirit, what does the Lord say as a substance to Abraham? Because this is what Paul's building on in terms of the promise. I am your shield and your defender. When Christ says at the Last Supper, I'm going away, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. Why? Because I am sending the Comforter. The Holy Spirit, in terms of our theology, and hopefully, I mean, if we take nothing else from this whole sermon, maybe I should have just said this and said amen, uh, but if we take nothing else from this sermon, the reality is the Holy Spirit is that power that unites us, prods us, continues to be at work in us, and at times may even drag us along in terms of our wilderness sojourn. Because we know that the Spirit will never give up on us. Because the Lord is the one who calls us as His people. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world. And if we respond in faith to the gospel, we know that we have Christ. And we know that we have Christ because it's only by the power of the Spirit we will respond in faith. So the next time somebody says to you, oh, you're reformed, you don't believe in the Holy Spirit, hopefully you can say, no, we have a very rich understanding of the Holy Spirit. He is a comforter who unites me to Christ and applies the distinct blessings of Christ, the one who drags my sorry butt through this world and continues to prod and work within me and stir within me the joy and the affections I have for my God on my good days and on my down days. He continues to intercede and to work in me because my God is my shield and defender. May that be our comfort and our hope as we sojourn through this age. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.